You are now listening to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Wait, the answer was add 10 gallons? Add 10 gallons. My first thought was we got to put active children. Yeah, great. <laughs> Trucks on the, on the way. On the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I've got two observations, uh, neither of which are really educated or well thought out. <laughs> <laughs> Which are like most of my observations are. There aren't a lot of problems on a job site that can't be solved with a sack full of biscuits. Today's episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast is brought to you by Actigel 208. Actigel 208 is a high-performance additive for the concrete industry that is greatly beneficial to the producer. It enables them to increase the percentage of manufactured sand by up to 100% and completely replace all the natural sand in the mix. In areas where natural sand is scarce, inconsistent, and expensive, this provides a huge benefit to any ready-mix company out there. Benefits of manufactured sand and concrete include consistent air content, improved compaction, and increased density. Now in the past, the downside of using manufactured sands was that they were hard to pump, hard to place, and hard to finish. Well, Actigel 208 solves all those issues. By improving suspension, stability, and the quality of the cement paste in the mix, Actigel overcomes the old issues with manufactured sand and leaves them behind. Let Actigel 208 improve the quality of your mix while saving money on every yard you produce. For more information, visit us at actigel.com. That's A-C-T-I-G-E-L dot com. Hello everybody, welcome back to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. I'm Josh and I will soon be joined by Paul Finley as well. Uh, We have a little bit different format for you guys uh, for this particular go-around. Not a full episode in the standard format that you're used to hearing uh, where we go into current events and, uh, you know, go back and forth and talk industry news and things of that nature. Uh, We will have an episode coming up within the next uh, seven to ten days where we will be back on the regular format. But this time, we're bringing back Dr. John Belkowitz. Uh, We had him on the program two episodes ago, and we talked about absolutely everything. Uh, Everything from uh, his company all the way to 3D printing and, and everything in between. But what we didn't necessarily dive into was colloidal silica. And that is a shame because Dr. Belkowitz just so happens to be an expert in colloidal silica. That's what he's devoted uh, much of his adult life to. So we had him back on the show and took a deep dive into colloidal silica. And, uh, you know, he answered all of our questions about the product and how it relates to concrete, how it reacts in concrete. Uh, what it's derived from, the, and and really everything that goes into that aspect of the concrete industry. So we're going to label this show as a tech bulletin because essentially that's what it is. I mean, it's it's uh, an expert on the show talking about uh, everything that you would want to know about a very specific subject. So uh, we get into that, and without further ado, I'm going to get out of the way and uh, have Dr. John Belkowitz talk to you about the benefits and information about colloidal silica, and y'all enjoy Welcome back, everybody. We have John Belkowitz back with us again. Mr. Belkowitz, we appreciate you coming back on here. See, last time we had you on, we originally said we were going to talk about coital silica, E5, the great things that are happening around that project. And uh, you came on here, and we just never got around to it. (laughs) Right on. We had an hour-long discussion about everything except coital silica. So having you back on now. Let's educate the masses, sir. You've been doing a lot of work in this field. Uh, go ahead and start. Number one, 
what is it that you're involved with right now? And then from there, kind of give us the history to how you got to now. What I am involved with right now is, you know, if we separate everything that all of us do into bookcrete, labcrete, and realcrete, I'm on the realcrete side of this. Uh, and that means we're working on a brand new ASTM literally for colloidal silica for concrete. Uh, and we just submitted what I hope to be the final ballot to the main or the subcommittee 0924. So with that, it's going to be a lot easier for not only colloidal silica manufacturers and distributors to get their products out there, but for the end users to make sure that what they're using is colloidal silica and not a snake oil. As it turns out, we've gotten to the point where the term colloidal silica or nano silica has gotten so popular that people are just trying to cash in on it and there are some snake oils out there. So my job, create the standards, work on job sites, get the technology out to the field, answer questions from the architects, engineers, ready mix providers and contractors who are the early adopters and now starting to become those mature adopters and just get into their critical path of construction. You say anyway, like that's a small thing. Sir, that is years, decades of that work. That is years. I used to have a full head of hair when I, uh... <laughs> no, I'm not joking. Why does everybody laugh when they say that? See this right here? This is all like a blank canvas. I had an afro, like just like a, a majestic mane of hair, but no. The stress of getting colloidal silicon to concrete. The shine that is coming off your illustrious dome is impressive, and so is some of the products you're working with. So, namely, E5. We see that out in the market. It's done really, really well. Uh, could you explain not only that product, but what makes that version of a colloidal silica different from what else is out there? Very important question, and I want to take this back to, it's not just my research. If it was just me doing this work over the last 15, 20 years, you know, we could not put all of our faith into it. But it's just the research institutions, I hate to say university, because that kind of pigeonholes it into the academic arena. But the amount of folks that have been doing the research on nanosilica, clotosilica, and concrete, it's ad nauseum at this point. Um, every direction you can think of for concrete, we've done the research. Now the problem, even though that's awesome because we have so much information, and you guys know this as I'm saying it, what we do in the laboratory is a totally different monster than what we do in the field. So everything that we've done in the laboratory has been for the basic understanding of the research. When folks have tried to take whether it's my research or Northwestern or University of Wisconsin and replicated in the field, not good things have happened. So that's what separates the university, the academic research to the distributors. When you say E5, uh, E5 is the, the base. That is their, their brand. Uh, there's E5 internal cure, there's E5 plus for ASR, and there's E5 liquid fly ash. Now, what differentiates the E5 to the academic is when I was using my academic or research-based nanosilica with Lafarge North America at that gypsum plant, I had to babysit the truck, 
I was the one who poured it onto the back of the concrete, make sure it had the right revs, make sure, hey, do we need to add a little bit of oil? Don't add any more water. They needed somebody like me to babysit it. Once I put it in the hands of the batchman or the batch person, bad things happened because that type of nanosilica wasn't forgiving to making standard or conventional concrete. What the folks at SpecPro Specification Products have done is they've taken the complexity, similar to what we did in the early 2000s with polycarboxylates, were very difficult to use 2004, 2005. Then we went back to the lab and we figured out why they were so difficult and took that complexity from the field, put it into the lab, made a more one-size-fits-all product, and then we got it back out to the field, and now we absolutely love polys. But in the beginning, we hated them. Didn't do the same thing from here to there. What E5 or specification products has done with their E5 line is they've made nanosilica more compatible, more palatable for the industry to make great concrete come down the chute, get into the form, finish it up by 4.30 on a Friday afternoon. And what that took is a whole lot of work in the lab and then the technical transfer from the lab to the field. It's so interesting how uh, the journey of introducing that product into the ready-mix market is the same journey we've taken with our product. It's the exact same journey uh, from originally having to babysit it, having to get it in there, having to get people trained up to then making it more forgiving, easier to use, simpler to understand. So people just press a button and good concrete comes out and nothing harder than that. Uh, but it's still an education process and you still have to convince people that this new technology is easy to use and it is forgiving and it is financially okay to use. <laughs> you know, it's economical. Uh, so how do you guys approach that? Because that's not easy. Um, it's not easy to convince anybody to use a new technology in the industry. I, I recommended that you guys read a book called Getting to Yes. And it, it kind of goes into, you know, why people say no to things. You know, when somebody says, well, I've been doing this 30 years. You know, in the industry, when we make concrete, I hate it when people say, well, there's a risk when I use a new material. No, there's not. This is a risk when you make concrete. We all know that ready mix providers are doing the best job they can, but oftentimes they're fighting, you know, dry aggregate, moisture probes that aren't working, hot cements. Maybe the day is hot, maybe the day is cold, maybe somebody didn't backspin their drum, but there's always risk. What we found is uh, working with the ready mix providers, engineers and architects alike, you have to show them the why behind. Why should they give it? Why do they want to disrupt their current critical path either by putting in new operating equipment or they got to bucket it in or they got to shepherd's hook it in or wand it in or they got to spend more money? Why are they going to do that? And if you talk to folks who make concrete in, in Texas, they'll tell you the why, the reason why we're going to buy a new technology is it either makes our job easier, it makes our contractor's job easier, or we're going to be saving money. If you don't answer those top three things immediately, I don't long-term strength, everybody, you need a little bit more long-term strength, throw a little bit more powder into it, right? You'll add a little bit more super, minus a little bit more water. 
A lot of the folks that we work with aren't concerned about strength, and I hate to say it, this uh, performance-based drive, they're concerned about gray concrete coming down the chute and making that process more efficient, faster. Uh, what we found with nanosilica, especially the E5 internal cure, it makes the finishing process a lot easier. And I'm not a finisher by trade. The gentleman who owns Spec Pro, Joe Shetterly, is an expert finisher and third generation finisher. But the type of floors, the flatness that we get from it, the abrasion resistance, we're starting to go down the line of the contractors and the ready mix providers caring. Now, taking a, a, a big jump, as we often do with innovative products with the E5 internal cure, we've shown that you don't have to use curing compounds. And I'm not talking about evaporation re reducers or retarders. I'm talking about, what is it, the ASTMC 309 or 1315 membrane forming curing compounds. Um, you don't have to use that anymore. Now, right away, that means money not only to the contractor on product that they don't have to buy a product, they don't have to store a product, but it also means a reduction in labor that somebody doesn't have to spray the product on there. And we've been doing a lot of work with, uh, I want to say the Indiana Department of Transportation, but it's more with uh, slab on grades, with folks who are making warehouses, but bridge decks, overlays that we've done, unless we have gotten in that worst case scenario where we shouldn't have been pouring that day, we have not had to use a curing compound to create the same environment that is resilient to that you know, standard evaporation. So that's one way that we get into the contractors and the ready mix providers that we show them that immediate savings of money. Now past that, when we talk to the engineers and architects, it's more of a, a discussion on long-term durability. You know, wh what's it going to do for the concrete and why do I care? And when we're looking at the interior warehouse folks that are doing automated manufacturing, what we've seen with these, with the E5 internal cure is that it increases the resiliency to abrasive wear. And we've done that using um, ASTMC 779 Procedure C, the steel balls running on top of the concrete, as well as the, um, the Chaplin abrader where you basically staple a big old motor on top of the concrete and have some steel wheels revolving around it. And again, you do a depth of wear measure it, I think on 15 spots in the circumference or in the, in the circle. So those are the ways that we normally attack this into the industry. And I tell you, the, the folks that are at specification products have been very successful. Uh, now what we're doing with the E5 plus LFA and this is what we've been doing with the Indiana Department of Transportation is doing a, a replacement of class F fly ash, uh, a replacement of microsilica, or in some cases, an addition to the microsilica. And that's what we're trying to do out here in Colorado is I want to empty the silos that have this crap ash in them. I'm sorry, pond ash or harvested ash um, and replace that silo with totes or tanks and get the same fresh properties, hardened properties, and durability. So how do you achieve all these fantastic things, but also manage to keep costs under control? I never said lowering costs. I never said that. <laughs> what are your three things? Roll, somebody roll back the tape. That was one of the three. Roll back the tape. What does the transcript say? One of the three pillars of development. I said that's what my three ready mix providers care about. 
right? So making it more convenient for the ReadyMix provider, get my folks on and off the job site, and if you can lower the cost. There's a chance when you use NanoSilica, you're not going to lower the cost. That you might have to bump up the price 50 cents, $1.50. And, and I was just told this by a ReadyMix provider, as long as fly ash is $1 less a pound or ton than cement, then most ReadyMix providers will buy it. But that assumes that the fly ash will get so expensive that it is almost the same price. That means we all recognize at a certain point that the concrete that we make is going to get expensive. So I know that that third thing is lowering cost. I really don't give a shit about that. To me, in business, you have three choices. I have this on a poster. I used to have it right behind my wall so my clients can see it. In business, you get three options, good, fast, or cheap. You can only pick two. <laughs> Same thing with concrete. You want it good and fast? Well, it ain't going to be cheap. And that's what most people want. So no, I don't think if you're using colloidal silica correctly, you will always get a cost savings. Now, saying that with the folks at R.L. McCoy, Indiana Department of Transportation have done is they've been able to reduce their total cementitious from 680 pounds per cubic yard down to 580 pounds per cubic yard. It's 100 pounds of powder. That Are they saving money? Yes. They're absolutely saving money. Now, is that a common occurrence? No. Because if I'm in Nevada and I reduce 100 pounds of powder, I'm going to have to put in something to get my yield. And normally that something is a coarse and fine aggregate. And in Nevada, in Arizona, in Texas, in California, Colorado, we don't got good aggregate. It just sucks up and monopolizes water. So I try to take out 100 pounds and I try to get that savings. And all of a sudden my concrete goes from creamy and dreamy to bony and nasty. So I, I think that in some cases where we have the rich man's golf course, where somebody's got a 5,000 PSI mix with 700 pounds of powder in it, heck yeah, they could save some money. But if I'm working with a Martin Marietta or CRCC or Delisi Brothers and they've already gone through the optimization process where they got three aggregates and they've gone through a granular structure, porosity index, and they, uh, it's probably gonna cost three bucks, maybe six bucks a cubic yard. Yeah, we had a similar conversation earlier this week in Jacksonville, Florida, with a major ready mix producer, and they said, "You know, if if the Actigel could uh, be cost neutral in this mix, we'd put it in everything." And uh, you know, it wasn't our typical man sand thing that we're doing, which could very easily save people money. But in this case, it was like a curb mix. And uh, they said, "Well, what are you thinking?" And he said, "Well, uh, if we could take out a." half sack of cement you know we're about cost neutral maybe better and uh i said well he said can you do it i said well i don't know how much cement you got in there right, <laughs> like, right. like if you're already leaned out then no and we went and looked at the numbers there was, there was no way no way we were going to take a half sack out um he was already borderline as it was so uh you know but interesting conversation so we, we try to do the same thing we always try to be cost neutral actually cost favorable because uh, that's the easiest thing to do to get in and if you can solve problems and not cost money then things can be very rapid and uh, sometimes they can't so uh, it's refreshing 
to hear honesty out of somebody who's promoting a product and saying, hey, sometimes it's going to cost you, but this solves problems you're going to have, and we can make it happen. You know, nobody has a problem with spending money on going to the doctor, you know, and getting medication for something. You imagine that? Going to your doctor and say, hey, I have a sinus infection. Doctor says, ah, I got the thing that'll cure you. It's a shot. But it's going to cost you 15 bucks. You're like, no. I, uh, I, I want the cure, but I don't, I don't want to pay for it. Like, how, how does that make sense in our industry where we're treating a solution as if we should get it for free? And that's, you know, with nanosilica, the amount of work that has gone into to design it, you know, to get it from being a difficult product to get into concrete to make it. Hey, it just fits into your critical path has been a lot of freaking work. And it's it's so evident when people just try to order it from some random manufacturer in in, in California or, or China, they try to get a 5-gallon bucket of it and add it themselves and it never works out. You know, uh, I I'm trying to remember the DOT that we talked to about using nanosilica and they disregarded everything they said and they just compared it to microsilica and used 6% of it and ended up using 10 gallons per cubic yard of a product. And it just went to absolute um, So yeah, I, I believe that there's a, a value proposition that you need to understand with the end user before you go down that road. So if they value a reduced price as opposed to performance or solving a problem, and your product costs twenty-five dollars a gallon. You got to use four gallons per cubic yard. There's no reason for you guys to have any more conversation. Their value is in the wrong place. But if they value solving a problem, they won't care about price. That price, and nobody cares about price. That's the honest truth, right? Oh, they're gonna absorb. I've got to absorb that fifty cents. I don't care if it's fifty cents, fifty dollars, or hundred and fifty dollars. That price is going back onto the customer. The customer is always going to pay for that price. And what? They're going to lose out on the, the schmuck selling concrete down the road because it's 50 cents a cubic yard? Yeah, they might. They might lose out on one job, but that schmuck down the road is normally making bad concrete. That's why they're not going to them in the first place. So that, that conversation about, oh, well, I have to save money. I'm, I'm not a big advocate uh, for even diet. It's like um, I, was wor I was talking to an engineer two weeks ago and uh, designing this big underground structure and we're talking about uh, E5 nanosilica and he says well he I had made mention of a, 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 a measurement that we taken or excuse me some data he said we had a 20% reduction in durability and we haven't even started to play with the admixture or the nanosilica and he goes well that doesn't feel right I said well, what do you mean that doesn't feel right he goes well I feel like we need a 200% reduction I said well time out First of all, we're not talking about poetry. This is not a piece of artwork. This is science and engineering and feelings don't get involved. Mm -hmm. And the guy said, well, John, I have a medical, metaphysical relationship with materials and I feel my way through designs. And to me, there's a wrong value proposition. This guy doesn't need to be talking to me and I don't need to be talking to him because we're not talking the same language. And no matter what I say to him, it's not going to go anywhere. So, you know, with nanosilica, with the E5, it's also been very selective about who we work with. 
there are some people who just don't want new technologies. I was working with uh, an engineer in Australia uh, for one of the coastal uh, municipalities, their marine infrastructure, and he specifically told me that his job was to say no. Started off the conversation, brought in four cappuccinos, some of the best cappuccinos you ever had. Sat down, we got some biscuits, some Tim Tams, whatever the hell they are. <laughs> and he said, hey, before we get into this, I just want to let you know, no matter what you tell me, it's going to be a no. And it was actually one of the easiest crowds. We sat back, we enjoyed cappuccinos and Tim Tams. It was great. But if he doesn't tell you that, that's when he becomes a tough crowd. Then it's a guessing game and you're sitting there trying to convince somebody that's never going to be convinced fairly certain of one thing and that is the last time we had you on you made a bet about the 3d concrete printing and then after we had you on we had famed economist dr audubon basu on the program and that uh, he specializes uh, part of his economic uh, specialty is the construction market and we were talking about the labor shortage and how technology is going to come up and hopefully help save that. And he said, oh, it's at least 10 years on these 3D concrete printers, which made me feel really good because I don't like losing money, Dr. Belkowitz. <laughs> he said 10 years. You know, I am so happy he said 10 years. He needs to keep himself in business. So um, everybody has got to, um, you know, shake the... And 10 years down the road means people need him for at least another 10 years. Um, right now, for every 1.7 jobs that is created in Utah, we need another house. Right? We need another dwelling. We are somewhere around 45% below the demand that we need just in Utah alone. I am trying to buy a house in New Jersey right now. Hmm. Every house that I have tried to put a, an offer on, when I refresh the page, it goes from for sale to pending or under contract. Homeboy can say all he wants to say about 10 effing years. I've got real estate investors right now looking for the right machines. I've got people who aren't even in the, the real estate market. Who This is the next Bitcoin. Right? This is, you want to talk about rocket ship to the moon? Once they figure out how to stop making these prints ugly, like right now, most of these prints look like your background. Like whatever that thing is on your wall for noise proofing, you're lucky if a house looks as good as that. Like I don't understand, I, I don't know if y'all notice this, but most of the houses have been given away for free because who the hell would buy something that looks like stack dog? I think he just called our studio ugly that's all i heard in that conversation <laughs> yeah i got it there are better ways of doing sound uh proofing than that than Gosh. sticking some styrofoam there are very few on the cheaper back. ways though dr had, belkowitz had we just consult oh did you not know dr belkowitz says price is not an option yeah and price is not an option hey we had three man good fast cheap yeah, yeah. good fast cheap see See, you did good and fast. That's good and it's fast. But it's I love that you brought that up because I, I reference that saying all the time, almost on a daily basis. I love it. It can be applied in almost any situation. You know, people in our industry rarely call each other out on that. 
right? Yeah. I'll be sitting in a, a or I'll be giving a presentation and somebody will ask me, well, have you ever used this stuff in, in concrete that's 10 years old or has, has been in place for 10 years? Who, who gives a shit about that? <laughs> 10 years. Is this the risk question again? What if I told you I give you for half off? Well, then we can go ahead and use it. Oh, the risk go, miraculously goes out the window? You know, these, the, the good, fast, cheap, the, the risk, these are all games that the, either the ready mix providers, the engineers play, so they don't have to say yes. If you can't answer their question, it's a get out of jail free card. And I'm talking about the 80% of folks who we have an issue getting technology, not the 20% innovators. So I, I, I have this um, issue with people BSing me. Well, if it costs less money, you know, if it was in a pulpable bag, well, if, if you put in a, an admixture dispensing system for me, you know, whatever, have you used it in a, in a bridge that's 10 years old? Like, you know, those are just ways for them to say no. Again, if you can cut through the BS, then that good, fast, cheap, that is the perfect thing. But you got to get to what their value proposition is. If not, you're just wasting your time. And that's the first thing that I ask them. Like, why am I here? What are your problems? And what do you think I'm, well, it's cost, John. You know, we've taken as much cement out as we can. We're, we're using the dirtiest aggregate. We're using the cheapest admixtures. We want nanosilicon to make it cheaper. And I'll say thank you for the time, gentlemen. Here's some cappuccinos. Y'all have a great day. I'm not gonna, nobody's going to make your concrete cheaper. If they tell you that, they're lying to you. The only way you're going to make your concrete cheaper is by clipping coupons. So figure a way to keep your clients, sell them more expensive and better concrete. I don't know what else to tell you. That's everybody. Everybody in the concrete industry is going to have to get used to more expensive concrete. Whether it's your product or they're getting freaking ash from Chechnya. I got people in Mexico calling me up every day. Hey, do you guys need fly ash? Why? Why are you calling me? You're in Mexico. You think I'm going to get a container of Mexico or a, a pig from Mexico across the border and it's going to be cheap? Like, it's just the reality and shoot. That expense conversation gets me going. That's the kind of content we want. Um, it's interesting, though, when you're talking about how the, the industry needs to get used to more expensive concrete. Yeah, I, I think that's going to happen anyway, naturally, especially in today's climate where, I mean, inflation's at an all-time high or as high as it's been in 40 years. But I, I think the key there is replacing the word more expensive with just better concrete because you're talking about people asking you well has it been in a 10-year-old bridge there's failing 10-year-old bridges everywhere there's failing 30-year-old condominium complexes everywhere there's failing concrete absolutely everywhere so when you talk about how we need to get used to more expensive concrete yeah sure but we need to get used to better concrete that's what we need to get used to I'm going to play the devil's advocate, Josh, because right now we are just, and you guys know this more than most, we in the Western U.S. are just getting used to manufactured sand, yeah. right? Add manufactured rock, but we haven't had to deal with manufactured sand like you guys have. And the manufactured sand is becoming more and more expensive, but it's still making shit concrete. Yeah. And... With me, like we had, we had to convince the folks at DIA 
or I guess it's DNT's recycled concrete aggregate. And it was more expensive than the virgin aggregate. And they're like, well, can we get a cement reduction? No. I said, well, can we get, you probably have to add more cement. Can we get a, a high range water reduction? No, probably have to add more. And they're like, wait a second, this is making our concrete more expensive and it's harder to finish. Yeah, but you're saving the planet. <laughs> so I, I would argue with you that I think just like when cigarettes got more expensive, I used to smoke cigarettes in high school. I hope my mom's not listening. Um, but it costs $1.25 a pack, right? This is back in like 94. And I remember when cigarettes went up to $3 a pack, I thought I was going to go broke. But even when they were at three fifty a pack, I and if my kids are listening, if you smoke cigarettes, you're in trouble. Um, with cigarettes, they didn't get better. They actually got worse for us. There's more tar. There's more byproducts. But now they're seven, eight bucks a pack, and we're still buying them. So I, I return to what I previously said. I think. It's just going to be more expensive concrete. The good crete and the crap crete, they're eventually just all going to get more expensive. Inflation, materials, whatever. I hear you. No, that makes sense. But that's, yeah, that's with anything. It's not just concrete. I mean, if I'm trying to buy a truck and the used truck market has lost its freaking mind and you're trying to sell me on the value of this truck, I start running through all the lists of things I need it for or that I think I need it for, you know, that has the line up. So in houses and retail space or office space or lab space, there's a cost to everything. And you want those benefits to line up. You know, and, and we still haven't talked about the science of colloidal silica. So um, when, when we do work with people on adopting nanosilica, the E5 nanosilica and the LFA combination, we, we normally start off with low barrier to entry stuff, four ounces per hundred weight. They really shouldn't see any changes in strength. They, they shouldn't see any changes in the back of the ready mix truck. They should really feel it. You know, the pump operators will feel, uh, you know, the same flow rate and lower pressures. And the finishers will feel the bull float glide over a lot easier, uh, a more creamy and dreamy feel. But at four ounces per hundred weight, again, it's a low barrier to entry. Now, once we start going into the higher dosages where we're doing the combination of the E5 plus the LFA, where we have two different types of nanosilicas. So, you know, this is not like we're doing out of my PhD where we're taking one monodispersion of nanosilica. This is all different types of nanosilicas and other things put together to make it not only easier for, for the end user to use, but it also gives you the best bang for your buck and it's the most forgiving in the mix. So once we get to that point, like we're with, with the Indiana Department of Transportation, they want to understand why. Why can we take 20% of a class F fly ash or even 3% of a microsilica, replace it with two-tenths of a gallon or six-tenths of a gallon and it does the same thing and that's less than like 10 pounds worth of material compared to what's 20 percent of 600 120 pounds what's three percent of 18 pounds how the heck are we getting the same benefits out of such a, a, a small amount of material compared to such a large amount of material so 
the the way that I start out that discussion is I want to set up a parallel between the class F flash and the nano silica because both of them are silica based products and and Josh I sent you a, a lovely picture uh, that has two SEM images uh, one from um, uh, Kud Bayang on class F flash under a scanning electron microscope and um, we see that it's 10 microns and if you don't know what a micron is or a micrometer is it's 10 times 10 meters but it's 10 times 10 to the negative sixth meters so a micro is 10 to the minus six right hand side of that I have a transmission electron microscope done by Brian Green's work from the Army Corps and it says 20 nanometers now the difference between a micrometer and a nanometer is that a nanometer is a thousand times smaller. So where a micrometer was 10 to the minus six meters, a nanometer is 10 to the minus ninth meters. And for a reference, a hair on your head, obviously not on my head, is around 100,000 to 150,000 nanometers in diameter. What the nanosilica does for the first time in the concrete and construction industry not in the academic arena but in the plant it allows us to effectively manipulate the molecular kinetics of cement hydration to yield a denser hydrated cementitious matrix very fancy schmancy way of saying it's gonna make the concrete better so how does it make the concrete better well because it is silica when we take a silica reactive silica and we combine it with calcium hydroxide so I have my nano silica on the left and my calcium hydroxide my SEM of a beautiful pore and concrete that's full of these hooded or plate like calcium hydroxide when I combine that nano silica particle with my calcium hydroxide in solution I have that pozzolanic reaction and we all know what pozzolanic reaction is we get it from fly ash class F fly ash we get it from micro silica silica fume and it's that addition of silica to calcium hydroxide to yield more of that backbone of concrete strength that calcium silicate hydrate big whoop John I also get that from fly ash you're right you're right you do Paul I read your mind so why do we care well before I get into the science of nano just looking at the phase value our, our fly ash has a very low percentage of purity you know the the ASTM says one thing but when you look at most products you know they they have 30 maybe 50 percent and I'm talking about the class F flash they have 30 to 50 percent purity of silica at least the ones that we deal with out here and then they have these all all these other contaminants these cleaners these things that smell like ammonia these things that kill and so when we're talking about the biggest differences and we're saying oh well we still get pozzolanic reaction before I go into the any of the the science behind the nano the biggest thing is we have to recognize that when we're using fly ash we're using a byproduct and just like I tell my children you get what you get and you don't get upset especially with byproducts right we have a low purity of silica we don't know what else we're getting that's going to affect the concrete with e5 nano silica you're getting a manufactured 99.8% pure product. There's no guesswork in it. As a matter of fact, the new ASTM we're creating, it gives you a way to make sure that one, what you bought is what you got, and what you got is not 
BS. It's not snake oil. It's actually the real deal. Those were the two things that I was most concerned with when we were creating this ASTM for colloidal silica. Now, because we're talking about a hardened particle, we do get other things. And before I go into the nano side of the silica, what we also get from these particles is something called particle-to-particle -particle packing and void filling. That same thing that if we had this room, this empty room, we'd put bowling balls, we'd get a certain porosity index. Well, if we took out half the bowling balls and put softballs, we'd get a reduction of porosity index. Well, if we took half the softballs and put golf balls, same thing that we use for granular skeleton and creating SCCs or more optimized mixes. That particle-particle packing and void film. And before I get too deep into the science, because I'm about to dive into science right now, what the nanosilica has done, and again, it's not just my words, it's a lot of other folks out there, it creates an environment that is not conducive to chemical and physical attack. Now, that was my value proposition when I did my PhD, and it's still my value proposition. You rarely hear me talk about cost savings, and here's one of my presentations. I'm not saying that right away that it's going to save you money. To me, like Josh said, it makes good concrete. From a general standpoint, um, I am interested in your thoughts on the name colloidal silica. It is what it is. Sure. And right. does it confuse the people you're talking to when they immediately think silica fume or micro silica? Do you have to explain what colloidal means? Does the conversation ever go in those directions? Right. Oh, absolutely. And there are people who confuse nanosilica with colloidal silica, right? Um, so first, what is a colloid, right? Milk is a colloid. And for some reason, anytime I say the word on its own, I adopt this Russian accent. And it's not on colloid. We use the colloid. <laughs> I feel like my name is Dimitri and I'm a cosmonaut. You look like a Dimitri. <laughs> I do, I feel. So anyway, um, a colloid is a universal suspension of something. When we look at milk, milk is a universal suspension of fats and proteins. And as long as we keep that, that suspension or that dispersion in its, you know, the pH, the salt, as long as we don't change it, that colloid will not break down. Now, I can't say the same thing about a silica slurry. If I take a silica slurry, it's not necessarily a colloidal suspension because over time that silica, even if I don't change the pH, I don't change the salt, I don't change the temperature, if I keep it in a stagnant, protected environment, most silica slurries or silica fume slurries, it'll drop out through Stokes' law, right? As it turns out with a colloidal silica or colloidal suspension of nanosilica sized particles, if you protect that suspension, it won't come out of solution. As a matter of fact, uh, Professor Konstantin Sobolev from the University of Wisconsin, uh, I want to say Milwaukee, um, and I don't know why, but every time I say that name, I have that type of accent, Milwaukee. Um, I think that's Canadian. But anyway, he says that colloidal silica is age like wines and the older they get the better they get i don't agree with that but what you don't see is you don't see that that agglomeration and that precipitation and that cake layer on the bottom um so that's what we mean by colloidal silica when colloidal silica first came to the united states brian green called it a ufax ultra 
ultra-fine amorphous colloidal silica, UFAX. I hated that. And Brian Green was the guy who got me into colloidal silica, and I said, hey, man, I'm not saying UFAX because it sounds like I'm cussing somebody out. Like, hey, have you tried this UFAX before? Like, oh, if I said that, yourself. <laughs> right, right. if I said that in Jersey, I'd get my ass handed to me. Um, so, and at the time when we said nano silica, it wasn't the true definition because there were dry products and liquid products. So colloidal silica assumes a lot of things. One, it is a nanoparticle, and two, it's in a liquid dispersion. Now that has a product brochure as well as a health and safety aspect to it. So that's what colloidal means. Did I answer your question? Yes, and those are the things that you've written in and stipulated in this ASTM that's actually up for ballot. Right, so in the ballot, and I can read you the definition that we have uh, right after the scope. Colloidal silica is also known as silica sole. Colloidal silica is produced by controlling the condensation and polymerization of amorphous silica and an aqueous solution. Colloidal silica, noun, an aqueous dispersion of amorphous silica particles having a diameter between 1 and 100 nanometers. Tim 4, an aqueous solution, does, uh, does the ability of this colloidal silica to do what it does, does that disappear if it's in an alcohol or some other? No. It's it won't disappear, and you can. The better question is the pH of the solution. So there's there's two ways of making nanosilica. Either you could take sand, grind it up until it's really fine, and then use some type of emulsifier to keep it in solution. It's very expensive, and it don't work out too well. The other way is that we grow it, and without going into some of the proprietary shtick, if I had a bathtub. Not that I'm going to make colloidal silica in a bathtub, but I put in a raw material, normally something that's a silicate, let's just say pot potassium, sodium, whatever the silicate is, I strip off uh, the salt, so all I'm left is with that silica, and then the silica is like, ah, I don't like being by myself. It doesn't like being an SiO2, so what it starts doing is it starts bouncing into each other, and then they eventually start gluing into each other. So they start out as monomers, then they go to dimers, then pentamers, then algamers. And once we get them up to the size that we want, and we can tell that by using ellipsometry or you know some of these higher tech equipment, what we do is we start throwing salt back into it. You know, It doesn't matter the type of salt. Or we start throwing an alcohol, or we start throwing an acid in. And what that does is it either controls the growth or stops the growth. Now, once you've done that, once you've set up either a pH of 10 or a pH of 7 or a pH of 4, and you change that pH, that whole dispersion, you change that pH, that's when your nanosilica turns into cottage cheese. Mm -hmm. And don't eat it. I was trying to give <laughs> well, you a visualization. Well, some of the literature I've seen says that the coital silicas are stable from a pH range of 3.5 to 10.5, which is you, you know, generally that's fairly right. wide but concrete's like 13.5 and we know it works in that so i don't know if there was something different between these right. other papers i was reading and and what you're doing over there 
it's it's a general statement that is true that you can have a a colloidal suspension of nanosilica sized particles between 3.5 to about I think it's like 11.1 um, and the reason why is outside of those outside of that barn door your silica starts dissolving so if you look at a sodium silicate densifier it has a pH of 11.8 12.3 even higher and if we took a nanosilica and just started throwing a whole bunch of salt in there so the pH went above 11 point whatever, then we would start dissolving that silica into silicates. Does that make sense? So, so to answer your question, you can design a variety of products between 3.5 and 10.5 or 10.8 or whatever that max might I, I want to say it's like 11 or 11.1 where it starts to dissolve. But you cannot create one nanosilica at 10 and then reduce the pH to 3.6 or 4.2 and it stays, stays the same nanosilica. If you create it at 4, it kind of has to stay at 4 until you use it. Does that yeah, make sense? So you're creating it in those pH ranges and it can be used in systems that ultimately will be outside of those pH ranges. Got it. And something is going to happen. You know, and based off of that pH range you can create or you can get different some things that are either positive or negative and normally what I focus on and again I'm trying to be very secretive here because there's a lot of confidential stuff but you know with the pH thing you can have some really awesome some things that can solve some a manifold of concrete issues that we've got today awesome dude uh, sorry for that tangent I Feel like I interrupted you, but man, great information. Uh, please continue on, sir. Everything we understand about cement hydration is a really, really, really good, educated guess. And man, I always feel the burden of that. So these questions, you know, the basic questions, I hang on that basic definition. What is a colloid? Why do we care? And how does it relate to nanosilica and using in the back of a ready mix truck? So yeah, I love those tangents. So anyway, um, I wanted to get into the science of you know what the nanosilica does. I tried to really concentrate it down to the things that we would care about, and I, I tried to put them in order. And I also gave a rudimentary image. So the first thing that I, I wanted to express was what I get from a lot of the end users is Okay, what's so special about nanosilica? You know, I've been using micro, I've been using microsilica or densifier, undensified silica fume for decades. Um, why should I give it about nanosilica? And um, I'm a big Star Wars fan. Love Star Wars. My uncle Rob and I, huge Star Wars fan. Sammy's just getting into it. One of the best ways to describe why we care about nano so much is the force fields that you see on a lot of the ships in Star Wars or even Star Trek. Um, and that's what we have when we take particles and we put them into solution. We end up getting this force field around that particle. Now, the larger the particle, normally the larger the force field. Now, we don't call this force field, we don't call this force field a force field. We normally call it an electrical double layer, and I believe it also has a fancier name called the Goy Chapman layer. Now, when we have a smaller particle, we have a smaller force field, smaller electrical double layer, 
or a smaller Goy Chapman layer. And the reason why is we just can't fit enough negative and positive ions around that surface, right? And it's because we have a higher specific surface area. If you don't know what specific surface area is, you take a big particle, a big particle, and you break it up into a whole bunch of smaller particles of the same material, now you have a higher surface area for the weight of that material. And specific surface area is measured in meters squared per gram. So normally with nanosilica, we have anywhere from 1,000 to 100,000 times more specific silica surface area to react with. Not just the silica surface area, but surface area in general. So before I start the rest of my shtick and my spiel, does it make sense that a larger particle will have more ions on the surface and a larger force field than a smaller particle will have a lower amount of ions on a surface and therefore a lower uh, force field. Does that make sense? Sounds good, brother. Uh, and the surface area thing is going to make sense to all the concrete guys listening to this because you could take coarse aggregate and replace it with fine aggregate and now all of a sudden your cement doesn't seem to be working so well because it's uh, having to cover a lot more surface area to get that paste aggregate bond. Right, right. Everybody understands that. And for some reason... I've tried to explain that force field in many different ways. The working with Star Wars or Star Trek, that seems like people get it a lot faster than instead of saying, well, there's a Goy Chapman layer that it's made up of positive and negative ions that – and I lose it. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I was actually thinking of another – because you, you mentioned how like the science of cement hydration we pretty much know what's going on but it's a little bit of a guess uh, i was thinking in my head i was like oh yes it's kind of like astrophysics like we pretty much know what's going on but it, most of that stuff's really a guess and so then you were talking about these force fields and uh you know bigger particles have uh bigger force fields and so i was relating it in my head again just inside my own little brain here it was like astrophysics so i was like oh if you had a larger mass of a sun it's potentially could have a larger gravitational pull on the objects around it larger gravitational force field um, but if you had a smaller one it would be smaller as well so what you just said is what most PhD students have to work on for four years, right? You just truncated my PhD down to one effing sentence, and I'm so glad we're recording. Different things happen to particles when we make them really freaking small or we make them really freaking big. So we, what you said about the sun we are just learning that. When I say just, I mean like a decade, maybe a decade and a half in, in the broad spectrum of the Earth, that is a just. We're just tap, getting tip of the iceberg. We are just understanding what that really small, small, hardened particle can do in all, whether it's carbon nanotubes, nano-TO2, nano-silica. The reason why nano-silica is so important for us is what silica can do. So we're just starting. Like what I understand from my PhD, it, it's we need to understand more. There's not enough, um, and it's the same thing about understanding how the sun works, and you know how the sun will affect us, and how suns grow, how stars grow, I should say. You know, I, I don't know if you've ever watched that that Voyager documentary. Have you Have you watched that yet? The the furthest Voyager in space. No. Uh, no. Uh, it's a documentary on the engineers 
that built and created the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 and you know a lot of stuff from Carl Sagan the engineers you know what is a satellite but silicone and aluminum and we change it into something else um, and what they had said about our perception about how big our galaxy is in a billion years our Milky Way galaxy will collide with the Andromeda galaxy billion two billion four billion I can't remember the noise it's a billion years you know plus they'll collide when that collision happens there's so much room in space that we won't even feel it that they'll just pass right by each other so again going back to what you said my PhD the impact of nanosilica size and surface area it was to understand what happens when we take a big nanoparticle and start making it smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and what is it going to do to the hydrate cement matrix and I compared it to a, a, something that's a thousand times larger that class F flyish which is still a silica but it's a different form so going back to that picture the different things that we get because we have that smaller force field and we still have a hardened particles, particle of silica. This is not a solute in solution. This is not a silicate. This is a hardened particle, just like fly ash, but a or microsilica. It's a thousand times smaller. So because we have that nanoparticle in that smaller force field, that silica surface area is free to react faster. Uh, there was a paper published by Land et al. in 2012 where he called it, I believe he said it was instantaneous posilonic reaction. Right. The second thing we get out of it, because that nanosilica wants to react so quickly, the cement particle wants to give up more of that calcium hydroxide. And at a certain point, we use up a large majority of that calcium hydroxide. We unbalance the system. So the only way for the system to get balanced is to release more of the, the calcium and silica from the di and tricalcium silicate from our cement particle. So we get something called accelerated cement dissolution wonderful set of two papers by a coal miner a coal miner in Sweden Bjorn Bjornstrom that looks at this accelerated cement dissolution and then um, Jamal Jayalapan from Georgia Tech has another paper where he takes nano TiO2 which is inert and he shows how we get accelerated cement dissolution just from the nano effect because of this smaller force field because of things happening a lot faster. Now you have to ask yourself, well, if, if TiO2 is inert, if it's not gonna react with cement, how the hell is it kicking off reactions? And that's because of something called heterogeneous nucleation. I love saying that. I feel like I am a real doctor when I say heterogeneous nucleation. Um, heterogeneous nucleation means when something has a small force field, other things will want to grow on it. Now, I don't know if you've ever read Jamal's work or any of Kim Curtis's work, but this to me is their, how do you say it in French there? Piece de resistance. And what Jamal shows us is this heterogeneous nucleation. Because this thing is so small, calcium silicate hydrate wants to grow on it. Right? So we're getting reaction not from the chemical effect, but because of the physical size and the things that we that happen from the physical size of those nanoparticles. So from all these three things, and you know, there's a lot of in-between, there's a lot of overlap, there's 
few other things that we could talk about with particle to particle packing and the, the type of calcium silicate hydrates, but these are the three basic things. With these three basic things, we can revolutionize the hydrated cement matrix. And that goes back to what Josh said, that we don't want to just make expensive concrete, we want to make good concrete. And that's residential concrete, low-end commercial, high-end commercial, shotcrete, shitcrete, you know, base course. I don't care. Um, and we can do that not only with nanoparticles, but that E5 combination. Like if any of your customers, any of your people are using that, that crap ash, that ash that is struck. And I don't know if you've heard this term before, but it's they're called either harvested or pond ashes. Uh, a lot of the manufacturers that we're working with are calling them benefited ashes. Ooh, that's a pretty term. Fancy. It's a very pretty term. Yeah, yeah. What they're doing is they're taking their their shit that they just dredged up, they're drying it in a retired kiln, and they're adding a poly, a dried poly, um, you know, they're adding a, a, an accelerator, like a calcium formate. And what they're basically trying to do is they're trying to recreate, or what would they add? There's one company, names don't matter, but they're taking this pond crap or this harvested crap, and they're putting a, you know, either a, a finely ground metacaon or a finely ground pumice into it. Pumice? Pumice. Oh, pumice is great for yeah, concrete to blend it. Yeah, it, but it's the particle shape is the exact opposite of flash. And metacaolin is expensive, by the way. You said 130 a ton earlier. That, I don't know where you're getting that number from. That must be harvested metacaolin. Um, I was working with a company uh, that bought or was buying a retired site. And I'm, I'm speaking in tongues right now. And yeah, their plan was to get a... They were going to have two versions of this metacaolin. You know, one that barely met the grade and one that was holy moly guacamole like uh what is that that metamax you yeah. know ate that that pretty pink stuff that is so fine and lovely so they had two versions one was 130 dollars a ton the other was 300 dollars a ton yeah that's i know the that's the number that's the number dude we're in the kaolin business now actually not kaolin but our company is like in the kaolin business so, so i know exactly what it takes <laughs> to make right. metacaolin it is not 130 dollars a ton <laughs> And I think I still have the notes. I still have my notes. Um, when they said $130 per ton, I said, come on, guys. Come on. And he goes, well, it's not going to be the Medicaid that you're used to. It's going to be a lower grade. And I said, well, oftentimes I am used to a lower grade of Medicaid. I'm used to paying more than that. I'm not used to paying per ton. I'm used to paying like 40 pound or 50 pound bag. And we don't calculate per ton. We calculate per pallet, per not even dissolvable bag. Dissolved bag would make it too expensive. You know, that video that I did, I just, we just released a video of me doing a nanosilica job site. I put metacaolin in there and I'm freaking chopping bags of the Sika metacaolin. I can't even imagine how much that, it's beautiful stuff, but I can't imagine how much that stuff was. Yeah, it's a lot. We were just working with somebody a couple years ago. They just brought us in to, consult they were looking to m make metacaolin out of like ponded waste tailings that had kaolin in it like oh my gosh great this, uh... good no good for Ooh. them we need that 
We need that because we're still going to have those people who are like, well, I, I want to sell concrete at $60 a yard. Great. I have a supplier just for you. They're dredging up junk, and now you can put junk into your concrete and get $60 per yard. Right? Me. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, people are so desperate for ash, they're getting their ash from anywhere from paper mills, you know, as long as you have something that is called a coal combustion residue, mm -hmm. folks are willing to buy it and benefit it because it is cheaper than dredging it up. You know, the, the one thing that I want to, to make sure that I say about using colloidal silica is that if you're a first time user, make sure you seek the professionals. That's like saying the first time I'm going to use polycarboxylate, I'm going to blindly throw it into my heaviest powdered mix. Because what could possibly go wrong with that, right? And we, we all know what could possibly go wrong. I was the guy who closed my eyes and threw the Advil 100 into the back of the truck. And when I had paste over here and rock over there, my response was, what the hell is wrong with this admixture? There's nothing wrong with the admixture. I wasn't using it the right way, and I wasn't using the right type for the cement that I was, or the concrete that I was playing with, and cement. So when you're using this stuff, there's a reason why specification products is at the top of their game for replacing fly ash, replacing microsilica, um, because they're out there every flipping day, as well as working with folks like me and Professor Luna Lou from Purdue University. And there's that. Good deal, man. Appreciate that. You answered just about any question that uh, any of this, anybody in this audience would have on it. And if we get more, if people start sending stuff in, emails, texts, in response to this episode, you know, we'll pass them along to you and we'll get those notes out there. Can I give you my craziest nano silica story? It won't take but two minutes. Absolutely. You look, you're the one with the time of oh, the hard out here. We're, we're I do here. have a hard out. Um, I... This is when Whitney and I first started the company back in 2009, 2008. We started Intelligent Concrete. Um, and I was giving a talk at the National Ready Mix Concrete Association. And it was my first presentation. Man, I'm, I'm tensing up thinking about it. My first presentation. And at the time, I was supposed to go to New Brunswick, University of New Brunswick, with uh, Professor Mike Thomas. Huge fan. He is especially for FHWA questions and ASR questions. Him, Jason Eidecker, Kevin Foley, any of those. But anyway, I, I, Mike Thomas was out, so he's sitting in the front row, uh, you know, standing room only. There's like 200-some-odd people in there. Oh, gosh, I'm getting stressed. At the end of the presentation, I gave a very detailed scientific presentation about nanosilica and cement composites. And uh, a whole bunch of questions. There was one question from a gentleman standing in the middle, and you know, a contractor, you know, pinches his ears, very stressed out, and he goes, "So, these nanoparticles you talking about? Is it same thing as those uh, nano robots from that GI Joe movie?" And I said, "I said what?" And he goes. Yeah, 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 you know that G.I. Joe movie. They got those robots that they inject into your neck and it controls everything you do. And I stood there with my potential Ph.D. advisor five feet away from me 
and I saw this opportunity to educate the masses, you know, what we get, you know, why do we care, nano-focused. I had this chance, and I opened up my mouth, and I said, yeah, yeah, these are like those nano-robots, and shit, if you get injected, watch the fuck out, man. It's going to control. <laughs> and, and Mike Thomas goes like this. <laughs> and you know everybody just stares at me i was like i was joking i was joking i was joking uh and then like two, like 10 seconds after that what's his name from the nrmca the big guys like well thanks everybody for your time i called up window like baby i just ruined our company by making a bad joke <laughs> yes 15 years later, you're still the same guy. And we appreciate you having you on here. Bad Thanks, jokes John. and all. Dr. Dimitri Belkowitz, everybody. Thank you. Cosmonaut. Talk to you guys later. Thanks again.